Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Beauties and the Beast, and that, of course, means Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, Michelle Simpson, and me on the days heading toward October the 21st and the national vote. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, on coverage of the Conservative Party of Canada today. Also, Dr. Christian Luprecht from the Royal Military College and Queen's University on the attacks on the Kurds by Turkey in the Middle East. And what does that mean as far as ISIS members are concerned, who may, without the Kurds watching them, escape? David Milgard and Ron Dalton spent a combined 33 years in prison for murders they did not commit. They're working now on an independent review board, and we spoke to both David and Ron about that. And Sean Simpson, vice president of Ipsos, on affordability. Canadians just can't get ahead. What do you make of the campaign so far, and particularly this past week? We've had the two debates, one in English, one in French. A lot of things have gone on. There have been platforms have been announced. We know that everybody's going to be spending more money that's coming in, at least for the uh, next few years. Catherine, starting with you, what about the campaign so far, and particularly this past week? Well, I've been around quite a while uh, on this planet. I don't think I've ever seen anything this crazy. It it is just uh, a dog's breakfast in terms of... I don't like the fact that all the parties are promising absurd amounts of spending that nobody could realize without bankrupting the country. Uh, I I certainly don't uh, like all of the sort of... We've gotten away from a lot of policy and into personal vendettas, it seems. And there's always some of that. I mean, I'm not trying to pretend this is brand new, but it just seems that this whole election is based much more of that than on anything of, of remote substance. Uh, I thought the debates were uh, pretty bad. The English one was terrible. The, the format of it was ridiculous, and I, mean, I don't need to belabor that. Everybody's saying that. Uh, didn't allow anybody to really make a point or whatever. And um, and the latest insanity about the CBC is suing the Conservatives for using uh, some clips that were in the public domain on air on our so-called national network that we taxpayers pay for. Give me a break. Uh. So that's the one I was going to introduce next, but since you've already done it. <laughs> all right, Michelle, what about it? What about the fact that the CBC and two of their performers are uh, suing the Conservative Party of Canada for the no, ad? I, I, I agree with Catherine. It's absurd that they would do that. And I, I just don't know where they're coming from. I really don't, because they're on they're nice. So if they want to, if they want to go that route, depending on who wins, we know that uh, the Conservatives, Harper particularly, wanted to just do away with CBC. Well, I, I don't know if he wanted to do away with CBC, but... You know, I know he did. 
he or he didn't want to fund it. Yeah. yeah. So well, that's like doing that's like saying that's it. like saying take off your diaper and handle it yourself, right? That's yeah. right. Linda, what about you? Are you making it three in a row on this one? Oh my goodness! Well, I I have to go back to what Catherine said. I mean, this is like a gong show. Um, it is so confusing. You know, first of all, the CBC, give me a break. I mean, we are taxpayers of this country funded. Excuse me. But let's go back to the debate. Oh, my goodness, it was a bad format. If, if Canadians were confused before, they are certainly confused now. But again, the responsibility is on good reporting. Nobody brought up the biggest issue with facing this country, which I, I've said it time and time again. It's fiscal. And when you want to spend all that money and you say you're going to help the middle class, no, today's debt, tomorrow's taxes, we're going to be taxed to death even more so. And so that is not helping the prosperity of this country at all. And I just, to me, uh, like, you know, oh, well, Trudeau, countless broken promises, fake environmentalists, firing strong women, these are all great points. A fake and a phony, says Andrew Scheer. And then they all get in on it. But again... We, have, we are in the greatest country in this world, I think, Roy. But now the OECD, International Monetary Fund, is warning this tariff war is going to hurt. And we could be into some huge reckoning. And therefore, we have to be prepared. But we well, we know, we know that Canadians individually feel that they don't have enough money to accomplish what they need to accomplish. We talked last weekend about 46% of Canadians saying they're within $200 and not being able to pay their bills. And we had a quite an emotional call, and we're going to follow up on that. Actually, on that call and that issue tomorrow, but later on today, we'll be speaking with Sean Simpson, the Vice President of Ipsos Global Affairs, and they uh, conducted a poll. They've been doing some great polling for Global News during the campaign. And uh, the word is that the economy is doing well, unemployment is low, but Canadians still feel like they cannot get ahead. And Sean's going to be talking about that with us. And just to your point, Linda, uh, the issue of money and debt, Professor John McCallum will be with us from the University of Manitoba later this hour. Voter Voters uh, are interested in promises today, was the headline from our chorus radio station in, uh, in Winnipeg, CJOB. Uh, where Mr. Professor McCallum appeared earlier this week. He'll be with us later this hour. Voters interested in promises today, not future fiscal responsibility. So, Catherine, we're back to that stage where we don't care, a lot of us don't care how much it costs, but can we make the payments? Yeah, and, and you know, you're never in trouble until you are. <laughs> and then when you are, things go south very, very quickly. I mean, the mid-'90s isn't that long ago when Canada almost, well, they were calling us Argentina of the North, as you may mm-hmm. recall. Uh, and, and when things go south, they do so fast. So, uh, and it, it just appalls me that we have such short memories. We, we've seen other jurisdictions around the world go bankrupt, the Greece, the Detroit. We see messes in other countries because of too much government and too much taxes. And I think the reason, well, there's a number of reasons people don't feel they're getting ahead, even though theoretically the economy's good. We've gotten rid of a lot of those very high-paying jobs in our resource sector, for example. So we might have jobs, but what are they paying? Uh, are they part-time and so on? Yeah. We also have a weak dollar. And we have um, people in debt up to their eyeballs, as Linda said. All that together makes people pretty nervous about their future. I have to take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk more about and look ahead to the next nine days to see what you all three think is going to happen. So the uh, Conservative Party released its platform, of course. Uh, We'll be speaking with Mercedes Stevenson, the uh, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News, who's traveling with the Conservative Party. 
Uh, Mercedes will be with us in uh, just under an hour's time. Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca. Linda Leatherdale at Linda Leatherdale. And Michelle Simpson at Michelle Simpson, Beauties and the Beast. Let's take a quick look before we look ahead at the leaders' uh, performances. We've had the two debates this week. Um, we know that Mr. Singh's popularity is climbing significantly. We know that uh, Mr. Shear and Mr. Trudeau, their popularity is not climbing significantly. And the same is true of, uh, of Elizabeth May. Uh, Michelle, as you look at the leaders' performances, what do you make of it? And Mr. Singh is going to be our guest tomorrow. What do you say? Well, I, I think he's a very affable guy, uh, Mr. Singh. But he can put out promises like a catering table because he isn't going to win. That's, that's my reality. And especially now that the block is on the rise, um, it's going to eat his lunch, too. Okay, Trudeau. Michelle. What? Trudeau. What T- about? Trudeau's performance. Oh, Lousy. <laughs> I thought it was lousy. Okay, I, I really did. Um, he tried to stay away from anything controversial. All right. Catherine, what about uh, Jagmeet Singh's performance from the beginning of the campaign to today? Well, I think, I think um, you know, pe- people are quite uh, confused, and understandably so, given what we're bombarded with with this, this crazy election. And I think he's come across as... Um, surprisingly um, better than people thought. I think people had zero expectations, and when you have no expectations, you have nowhere to go but up. But I, I must say on Singh, I mean, he seems like a nice enough person. Everybody, I don't know him well at all, but I, people I know know him, and they say, yes, he's a nice guy and so on. But what he's preaching is old-style socialist boilerplate. Mm-hmm. Tax the rich, everything's going to be wonderful. And by the way, that's never worked in the history of the planet no, to and, actually and- be positive. And the thing that gets me about Singh, too, is the guy wears bespoke suits, drives a high-end car, wears expensive watches and so on, but he's going to tell the rest of us how much tax we should pay so that we can live, uh, you know, a little more poorly. And that kind of silver spoon socialist I've always had trouble with. Linda, uh, I was watching Mr. Singh's performance in the the beginning. There was so little in the way of expectations we had nationally because we didn't know him. And I thought... My initial reaction was, they're very smart. They went and they had a look at some of the performances by Jack Layton, and they said, this works. Now, as I watch uh, Jagmeet Singh through the campaign, I think I'm seeing really the real guy. But I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they had a look at, uh, at some of Jack Layton's old videos. Well, you know, you, you took the words out of my mouth. I, I was just going to say, Jack Layton at the very end, obviously, really was starting to resonate. And... Uh, well, it, look at how many seats like they he won. He started off so slow, Jagmeet Singh, and now, you know, after the debate, I, like, I like, I'd say he probably came out the winner. Even Elizabeth May, where she had a wonderful opportunity, sort of blew it. Uh, but having said that, I, I would echo Catherine's concerns. I mean, a socialist pa- platform like that, I mean, let's remind ourselves about the Bob Ray NDP in Ontario and the disaster that brought and, you know, tax the rich and, uh, you know, put out all these promises be careful, everybody. But I got to say, the big guys like Andrew Shear and Justin Trudeau, come on, you got beaten up. Well, I, I think I, th- I think Andrew Shear did a pretty good job in that English debate. 
Well, he called him a phony and a fake. He did a good job. <laughs> so he was coming out hard, Andrew, okay. against Trudeau. All right, so um, I'm going to stop you because we have two and a half minutes, and I want to get a thought from each of you on what you expect in the nine days that are remaining. Michelle, what are you going to look for? Well, they're all running for cover, but I, I really believe that the push is on and that they'll, you know, the red carpet with lined with all our money is going to really show up. Okay. Um, the pot of gold at the end of the red carpet. Linda, what are you looking yes. for over the next nine I, days? I just wish somebody would recognize that this is a fiscally t- a, a responsible time. We need responsibility fiscal management, and I don't see it from any of them. Catherine, what's going to happen? Well, I think it's going to get even crazier. Uh, there's been there's been all kinds of dirty tricks. There's been exposing all manner of things, important and unimportant, as if they were, you know, the crime of the century. I think we're going to see more of that as desperation sets in with the Liberals, because it, it isn't looking good. But boy, for Canada, a minority government with, whether it's Singh, May, or a combination, or the Bloc, remember when the, the uh, separatists were the official opposition? <laughs> Heaven help us, folks. (laughs) All right. Beauties, thank you very much. We'll check in again with you next weekend when it'll just be a day or two before we vote. Scary. I'm voting on Monday. All right. Good for you. I may join you. (laughs) The 21st. Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, Michelle Simpson, the beauties on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Joining us on the show, and we're uh, always privileged to have her join us as a guest, is uh, Mercedes Stevenson, the Ottawa... Bureau Chief for Global News and host of the West Block, who's traveling with the Conservative Party. Mercedes, thank you uh, for taking the time. And, and and what's the focus of the Share campaign today, the day after they unveil the platform? Well, today they announced a task force to help find the $1.5 billion they're looking for uh, as part of their cuts comes to corporate welfare. So they've identified things, for example, like law laws getting frigid uh, and some of the other corporate welfare programs that are out there as on the chopping block. So this is sort of their panel uh, that will do that. You're going to see the shift here because we knew a lot of what was in the platform before it came out. There wasn't really anything astounding in there other than we saw the numbers, which is about $35.4 billion in cuts over five years to bring the budget to balance by 2024. But now they're going to start unrolling how they would achieve those cuts and some of the policy implementation. And how would you describe the mood of the campaign? I saw a tweet from you yesterday that they'd had the best attendance that you've seen at a rally that they held. What's their mood today? I'd say it's it's a good mood today. I wouldn't say the mood on the campaign has been um, hyper-energized previous to this. There was sort of a sense that they were fighting but not gaining a lot of steam, uh, a quiet persistence as they plotted ahead, but they were certainly elated last night with the turnout. They had about 1,500 people. Uh, that's in Mark Warwa's old riding. He is an MP who was long-serving, very sadly passed away as results of cancer uh, earlier this year. It is a pretty strong conservative riding, but it is uh, also critical for them to win in the B.C. lower mainland, and you've seen all the parties here. Justin Trudeau was here last night. Jagmeet Singh has spent a lot of time out here. Elizabeth May out here, uh, because there's so many seats in play and so many votes. So certainly I think they're energized by that. They're glad to have their platform out, but the difficulty now is that they have to deal with the last week of the election campaign all being headlines about billions of dollars in cuts, and the Liberals really trying to get 
get in there and, and to maximize fear about that and concerns. Uh, and that's where you're sort of going to see it splitting into the two directions. Are they spending a lot of time dealing with that uh, CBC suit against the party for use of excerpts from broadcasts? Are they talking about that a lot? No, not something that they've talked about a lot to us, anyhow, on the campaign bus. Um, they have certainly said that in a press release, of course, that they're going to fight it, uh, but it's not something that has really come up on the campaign trail a lot. And uh, what are you going to be looking for from the Conservatives in the next uh, few days? What, what do you think they will do? What will you look for? Well, whether they can gain any traction, that's really the question. Uh, they, you know, Andrew Scheer has had um, blackface. He has had SNC Lavalin. He has had a number of unforced liberal heirs gifted to him, and he hasn't seemed to be able to capitalize on that. Why not? Why is it that he can't seem to get ahead? Why is it that he's not losing, but he's not winning? Um, and, of course, you saw the stories this week that Peter McKay, um, they were speculating, may take over the party. I mean, you don't want that kind of speculation out in the open the last week of an election campaign. I interviewed Mr. Shear. He's on the West Block with us tomorrow. Uh, I asked him about that. He insists that, that um, they are moving ahead, that they believe they can win, that he believes he could get a majority out of this. But at the end of the day, they're at the point where they're going to have to start calculating whether or not uh, they will prop up a liberal government if there's a liberal minority. If they have a conservative minority, who do they start talking to? Anything can always happen in politics, but the chance of anyone getting a majority in this election is shrinking every day. And you're absolutely correct. He had a lot of issues gifted to him, and uh, they just seemed to be just... just spinning their wheels on them. And I, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about that now with our callers. But Mercedes, thank you so much. And we'll look for the uh, interview with Andrew Shear on the West Block tomorrow. Thanks for having me. Mercedes Stevenson, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News and uh, host of the West Block. Uh, it's my pleasure to uh, to speak with one of the most knowledgeable people on, on these issues and globally, and he's Canadian, Dr. Christian Liprecht is a professor in leadership at the Royal Military College, cross-appointed to Queen's University, where he's a director, there's director, rather, of the Institute of Intergovernmental Relations in the School of Policy Studies. He's also a Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. And uh, his most recent book is Public Security in Federal Politics, uh, published by University of Toronto Press 2019. Christian, thank you very much for taking the time. This is a this is a con- very concerning international situation. What is your uh, what is your view of what's taken place? As you know, the president is 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 receiving a tremendous amount of criticism, and he's being accused of stabbing allies, namely the Syrian Kurds in the back. Look, the Middle East is a difficult place, and I think it's uh, always easy for outsiders to criticize. Uh, what transpires, and so uh, I think there's there's many different perspectives on this issue. Uh, certainly, many in the West see this as strategically challenging. I think the greatest challenge, aside from the uh, possible humanitarian catastrophe uh, that uh, is likely to ensue out of this, and the challenge around uh, ISIS fighters that are likely going to stir up trouble in the region, is of course the contradiction uh, that this puts the West in with regards to the violations of international law. We have a situation, of course, where Russia has violated international law by um, uh, claiming territory uh, of Ukraine in both Crimea and eastern Ukraine. 
where the West has been very outspoken, and we now have a situation where Turkey is uh, essentially violating international law by violating the sovereignty of uh, another uh, uh, state, um, and the international community is essentially turning a blind eye and simply mildly condemning uh, the Turkish operation. And so I think this is ultimately why, in particular in Europe, many allies are profoundly concerned that uh, it is a duplicitous position that it puts much of the West in, um, aside from the broader strategic implication. From Turkey's perspective, um, uh, whether justifiable or not, the, uh, Turkey is deeply concerned about uh, the contiguous continuity of Kurdish territory along its border that might, uh, in the medium term, uh, from Turkey's perspective, uh, allow Kurds to declare some sort of autonomy, possibly seek some sort of statehood, which may then uh, in some ways lead to identism or secessionism within Turkey. Um, Turkey's own population counts about 25% uh, Kurds, or people who identify of, of Kurdish descent. Uh, and so for Turkey, this poses an existential threat. And so effectively, Turkey is pursuing the same strategy that Russia is pursuing uh, in eastern Ukraine, which is that by establishing um, a perimeter of about 30 kilometers deep and 500 kilometers long along the border, uh, that will give um, uh, Turkey sufficient leverage, it feels, to avoid the possibility of, Tur uh, of, of Kurdish statehood within the region. Do you feel that they're going to stop at that 20 to 30 mile corridor? And, and I, I remember specifically you and I talking about and uh, I've had a number of discussions, or had a number of discussions, um, a year over the last couple of years, where Turkey did nothing, essentially, did, or did very little to, to tackle ISIS. And now their actions against the Syrian Kurds could see, what, thousands of ISIS individuals, terrorists, on the loose again. This is not a recent change of heart by uh, President Erdogan. This is a grand strategy that President Erdogan had pursued from the beginning. It's part of the reason why President Erdogan um, essentially uh, agreed to look after uh, the equivalent of uh, up to 3 million Syrian refugees. Um, it's why um, President Erdogan um, at least implicitly uh, did relatively little at the beginning of the conflict to stop the flow of weapons and fighters um, uh, across the Turkish border um, uh, along and porous and in some cases very difficult to patrol border, um, one might add. Uh, and you'll recall that uh, uh, President Erdogan has since the beginning of the conflict talked about a safe zone of this sort. So um, Turkey is simply realizing that aspect of the strategy that it had pursued from the beginning um, as a way to exercise the leverage that it feels it needs for its own uh, for its own security, um, and of course to have another NATO member country violate the territorial integrity of another state in the international community uh, is deeply troubling for NATO and NATO member allies, including Canada. I want to ask you about Canada's uh, role in all of this in a minute, but um, how much responsibility does Donald Trump have for the uh, for the, the, the Turkish military action? So um, it's always interesting that 
Um, I lived in the Middle East in the in the 1980s, and at the time, the Americans were greatly um, demonized in the region, and uh, the region had very little time for America. Um, and so it seems that when the Americans um, show up in the region, they get criticized, and when the Americans withdraw from the region, they also end up getting criticized. So I think there is no... Uh, easy role to play for the United States. The United States is, of course, uh, the quasi-world superpower that, let's remember, in the strip that we are talking about here, had uh, only 50 U.S. soldiers, and those soldiers were the tripwire that had prevented Turkey from engaging in this operation. And so uh, the United States has the ability very much to sway events within the region. But going back to the Obama administration already, strategically, the Middle East and North Africa have simply become much less important to the United States. And I think there's a considerable feeling in the White House uh, that this is not a U.S. problem and it is not the U.S. backyard. And so that if European allies are concerned about what is transpiring in the region, then they need to show the political will and they potentially need to show the the military will um, to intervene or to pick up the pieces. And so it's always easy in European capitals to criticize the Americans for what they do with their own soldiers uh, when Europe itself has been rather hesitant to use its own uh, military prowess to assert its particular will in the region. And so uh, while there's a lot of criticism, I think this is basically continuity uh, of U.S. strategy. Obama's, the Obama doctrine was often um, uh, was, uh, was often called the leading from behind doctrine, uh, provide a few cruise missiles and some intelligence, but don't get, and perhaps some special forces, but don't get too actively involved. Uh, and it seems that uh, uh, the President Trump is signaling that uh, not only uh, a continuity in, in, in his relative small sort of interest in the region, but he also, of course, has to make good on his promises to U.S. voters that he's going to get the U.S. out of these eternal conflicts, uh, as he likes to call them. And Mm -hmm. he's trying to do that in Afghanistan as much as he's trying to do that uh, in Syria and the Middle East. Well, we saw in Afghanistan, we saw the European uh, NATO members um, many of them just basically have a hands-off attitude. They, their, their troops were essentially in Kandahar, while the uh, the Canadians and the Australians and the Americans were uh, on the sharp end of the spear doing the fighting. Uh, but I, I want to ask you, let me take a quick break, and we'll come back and we'll talk some more with Dr. Christian Luprecht, because now if, if ISIS members, uh, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of them, are suddenly uh, free from from confinement... That changes the dynamic completely, and it becomes a problem for everybody. So I want to ask uh, Dr. Luprecht about that. And then what role does this country have to play? Because we do have advisors in Iraq. But what role can Canada play? Does Canada have to play? Now, uh, Christian, who is... A couple of questions here. Who's fighting whom, and can this situation uh, result in towing the entire region into the picture? Well, sure, the Middle East is unpredictable. And so it's not just about uh, Turkey fighting sort of one cohesive Kurdish force. 
there's a Syrian Free Army that is in, to some extent a Turkish proxy. There are some of the ISIS components that uh, Turkey will likely leverage as proxies in the fight against the YPG. And um, for Erdogan, anybody who's a, tr- a Kurd sort of looks is, is, the, is the same ilk and the same color. And so he doesn't distinguish between uh, the PKK, so the, the internal terrorist-listed Kurdish organization within Turkey, uh, the YPG, with, which is the armed elements uh, within Syria, um, and then the Kurdish Autonomous Region in northern Iraq, even though these are all highly different, highly nuanced, uh, okay. nuanced entities. Okay. But he does have considerable leverage. He has the second largest standing army within NATO after the Americans, um, and he has uh, tried to play a grand game to establish himself as the regional power broker, um, and that's the gamble that Erdogan is trying to play here. And if he achieves it, uh, then he will be considerably further in being able to extend his leverage. So, from a Turkish so, perspective, we can under, sort of understand that, not necessarily perhaps um, uh, rationalized or justified. Uh, but if he sees the Americans as playing less in a, of a role, um, and he sees the region being left to Russia and to Iran, to Saudi Arabia, and to other players to sort out their differences, then Turkey wants to be in as powerful a position with as much leverage okay, as possible. Okay, let, let me ask you about ISIS. So what are the, what's the likelihood here? What are the, what's the, um, I don't want to say what are the odds, but what's the likelihood of ISIS gaining a foothold because of this situation and per- particularly because Kurds who've been guiding them or guarding them will say, we're not staying here, we're going to go fight with our fellow Kurds. Um, sure, I think this is a significant challenge. Uh, the concern is uh, for ISIS to either become a cohesive fighting force in the region again. Uh, there's perhaps as many as 10,000 fighters that uh, that could be liberated in this process. Uh, that's why sort of the argument that ISIS had long been defeated on the ground was never a tenable argument, given that the fighters had simply been imprisoned, and that's also the uh, what what Turkey had promoted um, the imprisonment precisely so that one day perhaps they could leverage them as proxy forces as well. Uh, And it also means that it might embolden ISIS again also beyond the region and possibly also cause uh, this sort of recruitment drive by ISIS that it had seen previously. And that's, I think, what President Trump is really after when he tells uh, Turkey that we could destroy your economy. I think there's a quiet deal as to how uh, Turkey is supposed to deal with these ISIS fighters. Uh, And I think if Turkey does not stick to the deal of containing uh, ISIS fighters, and uh, perhaps leveraging them instead for their purposes. Uh, I think that's exactly the retribution, okay. the concern that uh, that Trump is expressing here. In about 30 seconds, that's all we have left. What's Canada's role in all of this? Canada is heavily involved. We have the training mission in northern Iraq. Uh, we've ha- we have a small mission in Lebanon, a significant mission in Jordan, a long-standing mission in Israel with regards to the Golan Heights and uh, and the UN. Uh, so we have Canadian troops in all the countries surrounding um, uh, Syria, with the exception of Syria itself. And so whatever transpires within the region, we clearly have a commitment to regional stability. And anybody who drives instability is clearly not in Canadian interests. And so the Turkish operation here very much runs counter to Canada's interests for the region. And it's not about the numbers of Canadian troops necessarily. We're flying the Canadian flag or... Uh, and so, and so we're represented. We have an interest. We have a stake. Christian, um, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. We'll talk again. Really appreciate your time. 
My pleasure. Dr. Christian Luprecht, and his most recent book is Public Security and Federal Politics, University of Toronto Press, 2019. Imagine being in prison for 23 years for a crime you did not commit, being accused of, charged, and convicted of murder, and you're in prison for 23 years. Before the error, the abuse is discovered, and you're released over a long and protracted period. Imagine being in prison for 10 years, being accused of, charged, and convicted of murdering your wife. Well, David Milgard spent 23 years in prison. He was accused of, charged, and convicted of murdering an, a nursing assistant in Saskatoon, did not commit the crime. And an individual by the name of Larry Fisher was guilty. And very little was done to properly represent David Milgard at the time, so off to prison he went for 23 years. Ronald Dalton, uh, Mr. Dalton's wife, passed away after uh, choking on a piece of cereal. And yet he was accused of murder and spent almost 10 years in prison. They are both very active now on getting the system changed, getting things changed so the innocent don't go to prison at all, never mind for massively extended periods of time. And uh, earlier in the week, there was a news conference uh, featuring uh, Mr. Milgard and Mr. Dalton about an independent review board, and uh, this is um, David's um, initiative, and, uh, and he joins us on the program. David Milgard and Ronald Dalton. Uh, Ronald is the uh, president of Innocence Canada. Gentlemen, thank you very much for the time. Good to talk to you again. Hi, David. Hi, Ron. Hi. How are you doing, Roy? I'm doing well. How are you, David? Not so bad. Hi, Ron. Hello, David and, and Roy. Good to speak to you both again. Yeah, good to speak to you guys. I can't. I, each time I talk to you, I, I just try to imagine what you've been through, and I can't. And then the most fright, the one, one of the most alarming things is it could be anybody next. Very true. Don't, don't waste your time trying to imagine it, because David reminded me a couple of days ago that unless you've lived it, you can't imagine what it was like. No, I can't. I can't. I can't. D- David, um, let's let's get at the uh, the the uh, the project that you're that you're uh, calling for, uh, the independent review board. Uh, what's the objective here, and where do you stand right now? Where's the project at now? Well, myself and Ron are advisors to this working group, uh, the Independent Review Board Working Group. And uh, we have James Locke here, uh, a gentleman and a legal beagle that uh, has uh, sort of like first sort of hands-on experience dealing with people with wrongful convictions and with the ministerial board that uh, doesn't work properly. It's it's just a a very bad thing for for people, especially the wrongfully convicted, are sitting inside prison. And we have uh, two other ladies that are, are, are part of our group, uh, Lori Kuffner and uh, and Ruth. Uh, you know, who has has been really, really working really hard, both of them, in in uh, getting things uh, going and getting things uh, moving in the right direction. So uh, I think Ron and myself can both tell you basically, there's only really one objective of our of our group. And that's to establish the independent review board. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ron, how would it work? What's what's the what's the plan? Because political parties here we are in the last ten days of a federal election, and this is just, this is just really to give, uh, just to give your listeners, Roy, a little bit of background. Yeah. Uh, 
up until 1997, uh, most Commonwealth countries around the world same type of ministerial review that we have. Once a, a prisoner has lost all of their appeals in the courts, they still have a faint hope clause that they can apply to the minister to have their case reviewed. And if it's suspected to be a case where there's been a miscarriage of justice, have it referred back to the, the courts for one last kick at the can. Uh, that takes a lot of years. In 1997, England, and then followed by Scotland and a number of other Commonwealth jurisdictions, including New Zealand and others, uh, did away with their ministerial review board and replaced it with an independent, publicly funded body that did not answer to the minister, but I answered directly to Parliament. And, and that, that is what you're looking for now? That's we're, we're looking for the same type of thing here. Exactly how it would work, of course, details to be worked out through legislation and, and regulations, but we would hope to take the best of the models that are in other Commonwealth countries and uh, improve on the weaknesses that they have and improve on, on the system we have right now. Right now, people apply to Innocence Canada. It takes us years and years and years because we're a volunteer agency, uh, you know, a nonprofit trying to do this, this huge amount of work. We're only able to look at some of the most serious cases. To compare numbers, I think since 1997, the British model has looked at just over 800 cases, three-quarters of which were referred back to the courts and, and adjudicated to be cases of, of wrongful conviction. Wait, I'll say that so, again. Eight, 800 cases and, and three... Three, 803 or 807, slightly over 800. And three-quarters of them? Three-quarters of them, because the, by the time they, they only refer the ones back to the courts where they're convinced that there has been a miscarriage of justice. Right. Now, they're looking at more than just murder cases. Innocence Canada has, has barely has the resources to look at the homicide cases in this country. But during the same period of time, our ministerial review process from 1997 until now looked at, I think it's 26 or 27 cases. There, now, the England, the England and Scotland, the figures I gave you are combined for England and Scotland. Okay. They have double our population, but still, if, if you call theirs 400 compared to our 26 or 27. Uh, David, what do, what do you want to add to this? Well, I think, Ron, you know, Ron's very right. You know, there's just so many cases. And I think that's what, you know, both Ron and I are here. We, we speak for those voices that need to be heard. We're talking about men, women, and in some cases, children, all who have done no wrong, innocent and condemned to prison. Prison is a horrible place, Roy. Yeah, I... I can ask you a question, and I'll ask your listeners a question. Okay. And it's a good idea for them to understand the rationale for, okay. for what's going on. I want you to tell me which you think is is the worst injustice or what is not justice, what is just wrong. You know, history, which has shown repeatedly that the current system in Canada is incapable of ex expeditiously reversing wrongful convictions in a manner that is fair, timely, and just for innocent people in prison, or the fact that the former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybaugh allowed Glenna Soon's case to sit for 18 months after she was advised of a problemless justice, a miscarriage of justice had taken place. What do you think is, is, is just wrong and is and just not justice? Which is the worst? You know, I remember that case, and that case was just terrible that it, was not, that it, that it wasn't acted on. The, the reality, Roy, is, is that uh, for the last 30 years, which is about the length of time that uh, 
that David was embroiled in the system. He spent 23 years in and another six or seven before we were able to establish his innocence, not only establish his innocence, but actually identify the, the actual perpetrator. But during the last 30 years, there's been six public inquiries looking into different wrongful convictions, starting with Donald Marshall's, including David's and my own and, and uh, Tom Safano and, and others. And those, the recommendations coming out of those inquiries, the number one recommendation has been the establishment of an independent body that takes the federal justice minister out of the equation and is much more efficient than the system that we have right now. now so the, why? So, the so, breaking so, news, sorry to cut you off there, the, the breaking yeah. news this week is on the 2nd of October, the Liberals announced they were making it a plank in their election platform to do just that. A couple of days later, the NDP and the Green Party uh, got on the on board as well. So we now have three major political parties in this country who have committed uh, that following the election, they will establish an independent board. So we, we've been, as an organization, Innocence Canada has been asking for this for the last 25 years. Prior to our existence, the, the Marshall Inquiry uh, predates Innocence Canada, uh, they made that a recommendation, and as recently as, as David's the public inquiry into David's uh, case, they, they made that a recommendation as well. So it's well past time where politicians, academics, and others, the, judici the judiciary, a lot of judges are, are supportive of this. Well, it makes absolute sense. Are you saying that the Conservatives and Andrew Scheer have not committed to they, this? They have not responded. We, we've invited them to, to get behind the well, idea. Well, they better get well. behind it. We, well, you would hope. It's pretty difficult it's to a, imagine. It's not a partisan issue. You know, this no. is a human rights issue. And, you know, just to follow up really quickly what Ron said, you know, it's not something any government should ever forget when it fails to do justice for those that need our help the most. And as Ron has been saying about Innocence Canada, my mother, my family, myself, James, and many others have never given up trying to resolve the many problems of the present Ministerial Review Board. You know, uh, and you're not asking for anybody who's guilty of a crime no, to be released. You're talking about justice and fairness and getting people out of prison who shouldn't have ever gone to prison. The name of our organization is Innocence Canada. Right. We specifically chose that name because we only work with the innocent and we represent people all across this country. Okay. It was a conservative government, of Brian Mulroney's government, that acted to get David out of prison. And that was because your mom... His, challenged his Mr. Mulrooney in public. She uh, my mom went in public fight for everybody. Yeah, she fought yeah. everybody and then anybody to try to get me out of prison. Do you know, I you know, David? Me. I spent so many times, so many, so many hours with your mother on the air. She was just, just, just a remarkable person, and she fought for you, and she got it done. And now we have to take it the, all the way, as you're saying, and have this independent review board. Gentlemen, hold on, please. I have to take a quick break. We'll come back with more with David Milgard and Ronald Dalton. There was a, a news conference at Innocence Canada and a public call for the establishment, and uh, again, the call for an independent review board. Uh, as far as individuals who are in Canada's prisons is concerned, individuals who were convicted of a crime they did not commit, you can go to Facebook uh, and you'll look for independent review board. All right, go to facebook.com and then uh, slash independent review board. Uh, David Milgard is with me, Ron Dalton with me, and both of them have spent years, uh, David more than 20 years in prison for a murder he did not commit, Ron uh, 10 years in prison. Can't imagine. 
can't even imagine. There's no question, there's no doubt that there are people in uh, in Canada's prisons across this country who are there unjustly and they did not commit the crime they were convicted of, gentlemen? There's lots of people that are sitting inside our prisons right now that are wrongfully convicted. And, you know, as Ron knows, uh, how do you call it, the queue, the people trying to get forward, trying to get out. I think it's it's so important that our working group, you know, it has a lot of expertise in it. To, to bring it to the table, we want to help whoever moves forward to establish uh, this independent review board. I'm presently working, well, our group is presently working with people from the United Kingdom where an independent commission already exists. But we need to take the best from this model and improve on any weaknesses. This is where we have to start. David, what, what I hesitate to ask this, but what was it like for you to be in prison for so many years knowing you had not committed the crime you were convicted of and nobody was listening to you other than your mother and, and your family? I'm sure Ron will share this with me. It's just horrible. I mean, you can't let it, it doesn't go away. It doesn't leave your mind. I still dream that I'm locked up. The only good side of that is that when I wake up, I realize that I'm free. But uh, yeah, it's it's a terrible thing to be inside prison. Uh, you know, especially, I, I just can't imagine a, a woman, and, you know, there have been wrongfully convicted women, and I'm sure there are wrongfully convicted women right now that are fighting to get out of prison. And the worst thing about it is that, you know, the present system, the Ministerial Review Board, it doesn't work to get them out. And the problem is even once they've identified that they are, in fact, not guilty, that they're innocent, you know, they'll send it back to courts, they'll do this, they'll do that, but they'll do anything but release these people. The Independent Review Board will get these people released once their situation is investigated and it's sent to a body to evaluate that investigation. There's no reason to keep these people for 10, 15 years before they get out of prison. They need to get out now, Roy. No question. Ron, I remember when I was reading about your case and you were charged with murdering your wife before the autopsy of your wife was concluded. And I, I, I just remember looking at that and thinking, how does that happen? Doesn't and then the next, right, does it? I'm sorry. I say it doesn't quite sound right, does it? it? Do, and, and then the next thought is inevitably could be anybody next. Well, that's that's the reality. We we actually have some T-shirts at Innocence Canada that say it happened to me. It could happen to you. Uh, it's, it's a fact. Uh, one one of the things that I'd, I'd mentioned, David, when he was talking earlier, mentioned men, women, and children. And you don't think of children as being wrongly convicted. But David himself was a 16-year-old child, if you'll excuse me for calling him that, uh, back in 1969 when when his nightmare started. Stephen Truscott was a 14-year-old child when we as a nation sentenced him to hang for something that uh, he he didn't didn't do. do. Now, thank God that didn't happen, but it didn't happen for political reasons. You know, the, the Diefenbaker cabinet of the day decided that you would lose too many votes by hanging a 14-year-old child, not because anyone suspected that he may have been wrongly convicted. I have about two minutes here. Uh, the the models that exist in other parts of the world are working better. I mean, they're, they're working. They, they can be improved on, as you've said, Ron, but they're working, and people, innocent people, are getting out of prison. This is what has to happen. How can we, how can we individually assist Innocence Canada? What, what can we do? 
Well, as any nonprofit, we can always use donations to keep the lights on until the government gets around to replacing us. Uh, but uh, given that we have an election coming up in, in the next nine or ten days, whatever it is, uh, question your people running for, for office in your district. Question the leaders, ask them where they stand on, on this particular topic. It's difficult to imagine any government that would not be in favor of this. And, and as a collective, you know, the people of the country, we collectively deserve to improve our justice system at every opportunity. And this one is a pretty much a no-brainer. It's been recommended uh, for 30 years. It's been in use for uh, just as long in, in other jurisdictions. And it's an improvement over what we have now. It'll never be perfect. We're not entitled to a perfect justice system. We'd like to have one that's fairer and, and more efficient. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, David, it's always... It's always good talking to you, and I. none of us can imagine what you experienced. In, and, and there are people in prisons right now who don't belong there because they didn't do what they were convicted of, and it's time for the Independent Review Board and it's time for the Conservative Party to join the others and, and commit to the establishment of an Independent Review Board after the election. Um, so, and it's, it, it's innocencecanadais.com, uh, Ron? Yes. Okay, so go to innocencecanada.com, folks, and if you can contribute a few bucks and help them out, it'll help in a major way to help them get their work done. David, Ron, good talking to you always. Thank you for the time. Thank you for helping us get the word out. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thank you, Ron. I really like the way you talk. You you talk better than me, Ron. (laughs) You you guys are both great. Thank you. David Milgaard and uh, Ronald Dalton. So, um, an Ipsos poll done for Global News, even though the economy is doing well and unemployment is low, Canadians still feel they cannot get ahead. And that is something that we've talked about on this program and as recently as last weekend. And we will again tomorrow take some calls on it. Sean uh, uh, Simpson joins us, Vice President of Ipsos Global Affairs. Sean, thank you very much uh, for the time. And I'm just reading uh, one paragraph, a small paragraph here from the news story from Global News. According to an Ipsos poll conducted exclusively for Global News, 68% of Canadians feel like they can't get ahead, with 82% saying they feel things are becoming less affordable. Mm -hmm. That same poll shows Canadians are split down the middle, 50-50, on whether they are better off now than in 2015. Can you interpret that for me, please? Yeah, well, I mean, the last uh, four years under uh, under Justin Trudeau, we, we've had a fairly, you know, strong economy. Actually, uh, unemployment is is near record lows. Uh, we continue to see economic growth, but um, that the macroeconomic situation doesn't seem to be translating to the microeconomic uh, kitchen table. Uh, um, pocketbook, you know, budgeting of, of Canadians, most feel like they can't uh, get ahead despite what the economists are telling us. How much of the, when we look at the employment numbers, and this has been raised a number of times, I've seen it in emails, I've heard it in calls on the air. Uh, one of the points that is made, look, full-time jobs have been replaced by part-time jobs, mm. where the employment uh, is, is a little more tenuous, and you may be moving from job to job to job, or you may have two or three part-time jobs, and you're still not making as much money as you did a few years ago with a full-time job. Are you hearing that? Yeah, well, I think what we're what we're seeing consistently in our data is that things are different than they were pre-Great Recession. You know, before the Great Recession, which is 10 years ago now, essentially, um, almost 85% of Canadians would consistently tell us that the economy is in good shape. 
and now we struggle to stay in the 60s. Uh, so uh, I think people see that there's a, a, a new reality, and that is, like you've described, less part-time work, fewer pensions, more part-time job, more internships for younger people who are trying to transition from school into the workforce. Sean, where are the uh, major concerns that uh, Canadians have about their, the money they have, the disposable income they have, and what they're having to pay for? Yeah, well, they're, they're concerned about uh, um, being able to save for their future. You know, when they look at the economy, they say, well, things may be okay now, and I may be able to afford the, the, the necessities, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about uh, emergencies where I, I don't have enough saved. I'm concerned about my retirement because uh, if I can't seem to get ahead, then part of that is that I can't put away any money for a rainy day or, or my future. And and I think, you know, given an aging population and increasing demand on health care and everything else, I think Canadians are wondering whether there's going to be any money left to help them when they need it. Yeah. I'm also wondering whether, given the fact that uh, 11 years ago we had a major global recession Canada came out, came through it far better than many other countries, but nevertheless, it impacted everyone, and the, 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 the scare stories were, were around every single day, and they were frightening, they were alarming. How much of an impact does that event, that recession, have on the way people are thinking today? Well, I think it has a significant impact. Um, a slim majority of Canadians believe that we are going to be in a recession uh, within the next year. In fact, about one in ten think we're already in a recession. So, uh, you know, they don't have a, maybe a great handle on on the macroeconomic picture, but but they personally feel like you know there's there's a recession going on. And what we see is there's, there's a clear divide. Uh, conservative voters much more likely to think a recession is coming, much more likely to believe that the economy, taxes, and affordability are a central issue for them. On the progressive side of the equation, much less likely to think a recession is coming and feel that the economy is actually in better shape than conservative voters do. So what's the takeaway from this poll? And then part B of that question, is this feeling that people have going to cause them to perhaps change how they might vote or get out and vote if they weren't going to vote? Or, yeah, or not vote at all. Yeah, well, I, I think the key takeaway here is that, um, you know, affordability is the number three issue of the campaign. And when we ask people who is best to lead on affordability, who, who's going to make your life easier, uh, there is no clear winner. Um, and so I think in the last week of the campaign, what we're going to see is the parties making a last-ditch effort and attempt to convince Canadians that they are the ones that can help them with their kitchen table economics, with their budgets, and making sure that there's enough money uh, in their pocket uh, at the end of the month to save for their future. Nobody has a lead. I expect that that is one area where there will be a fight in the last week. Always great talking to you, Sean. Thank you for the time. Thanks, Roy. Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs in the poll done for Global News. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 